0: Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 53. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness and the power of darkness. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Every step along the way in Luke, these last number of weeks have brought us closer and closer to the absolutely enormous event of the death of the Son of God, His resurrection and His ascension. And I I can't describe the feeling that I've had over these last number of weeks as, well really, since we've been approaching Jerusalem, since Jesus set His face, to go to Jerusalem. But now, as he's in Jerusalem, as, as these events are starting to unfold, the, the feeling I've had is one of kind of dread for him, um, some level of kind of um, butterflies in my stomach almost, that kind of feeling that is like sad and yet expectant and anticipating what's to come as one who is a happy recipient of what he's going to do. There's, there's, there's a reality here that what we come to in these texts is at the very center of our hope. So we have said the last three weeks, I think, we've entered into holy ground, um, in, in, in the holy ground of Scripture. There's this, there's this wonderful reality that we've come to. What, what is to come amounts to the historical and geographical events of all time throughout all time and space, events that utterly divide humanity into two camps. Uh, the way that the biblical authors speak of it is those whose names are written in the book of life or the Book of the Lamb, and those who aren't written in the Book of the Lamb. And so I pray that as we enter this again today that you feel the weight of the text that we've come to. Very familiar text, but the weight of it. Did you feel the sorrow? Do you feel the exhilaration? Do you feel the wonder? that The Son of God, King Jesus, real man with a real body in real time and real space, giving himself over to all that we're going to look over these next handful of weeks. He's he's coming. He's He's left the building and he's gone to accomplish that which we preach week in and week out. The one for whom all things exist and have their being walked, talked, and loved even to death on a cross so that you and I can sit here today in comfort, in the air conditioning, safe. Amid all the complexity of our lives, the complexity of our country, the complexity of our world, and the we can know peace, and we can know salvation, we can know joy, we can know contentment, we can know forgiveness and acceptance, having been adopted into the king's family, whether we are sitting here or whether in the very dangerous land of Afghanistan or other places. Absolutely astounding. I I pray you feel some of that wonder, and you feel some of the weight of glory here, some of the infinite glory that's being revealed to us as we walk these well-worn paths of the story. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been considering some significant things that Jesus has been teaching His disciples in the upper room. And and remember, uh, in the sermon follow-up, we've, for the last three weeks, put um, uh, some passages in John in there as ways to uh, think about the discourses of, the, of, the, of that upper room uh, in John chapter 13 through 17. So just encourage you to look at those and study those and to think, but we're in Luke, and so we've just stayed in Luke, and there's plenty to consider in Luke and what he has done, what he has said, what he has taught his disciples amid their pride, amid their blindness, amid their stubbornness, amid their confusion— like we talked about last week, and their failures, and he's taught them, and he's cared for them, and he's strengthened them. And last week we left off with Jesus wrapping up his time in the upper room, and this week we find ourselves in verse 39, where we read that Jesus came out of the upper room, and he headed back to the Mount of Olives, where he was staying. And the disciples followed him just as they had done, you know, for the last three years. Wherever he went, it's where they went. And all of what we're going to consider this morning is going to be happening on the Mount of Olives. What we're going to consider um, uh, in the future is as it comes out of the Mount of Olives. But today everything that happens is at the Mount of Olives. Other Gospels mention the specific name of the area in the Mount of Olives where they are. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. So with two swords in hand, as we learned last week, ready to take on whatever comes their way foolishly or not. The disciples follow Jesus into the garden, and what we come to is just more teaching of Jesus. Teaching not as much by words as much by actions. Um, And Christian discipleship is both of those things, words and actions. Actions. It's not just growing and knowing more information about some important things, as important as that is. It is at the very core being a learner of Christ. Slowly, ever so slowly, yet surely, the disciples are learning Christ, and in the garden on this very, very difficult and sorrowful night, they will learn Christ some more. And by the Spirit's power, may each of us who also feel the slow, plodding nature of learning Christ in this life, come to know what Jesus is teaching, and and be not only encouraged this morning, but better equipped to live a life of increasing faith amid even severe difficulty. And so, what's Jesus teaching us in the passage? What, what is it we're to learn? For the time that we have this morning, I want us to consider a few observations from our text regarding what we can learn uh, by looking to Christ's words and his actions here. And then as we come to a conclusion, I hope we'll have made this point clear, specifically that fervent and believing prayer provides the people of God with precisely what is needed in the face of even the severest of difficulties. Consider the first observation with me for a moment. Fervent prayer prepares God's people for difficulty. Fervent prayer prepares God's people for difficulty. Now consider the context that we're in here for a moment. You might imagine Jesus and his disciples, and put yourself into the text. Put yourself into this situation. That's how we need to read this, to put ourselves into the situation. What would be going on in our minds, in our heads, if we were in that place? So they're walking into the garden together, having just been together for this meal where Jesus had taught so many things to them, having had Judas just depart from the room to get on his way to do what he was going to do having had the very real human emotion of anxiety and apprehension and fear of what was going to face him that very night. Further betrayal, further denial, loneliness, significant pain, emotional pain, relational pain, physical pain, along with a humiliating death on the horizon. But that's not all that faces Jesus. All those things are very real and true, but it's not all the faces and The significant agony that verse 44 speaks of isn't entirely about all of that, kind of more normal stuff, if that's not enough. It speaks of something infinitely more, and it has to do with the cup that Jesus speaks of in verse 42. And if you've been here on our Good Friday nights, you will have heard a, a, a monologue on the Father's cup, and I would encourage you, it'll be in the sermon follow-up this afternoon, to listen to that or to watch it as far as all of what the cup represents, which we won't get into too much this morning. But the cup that he speaks of is what induced the greatest agony in him, the, the deep sorrow. John Calvin writes this, his horror was not then at death simply as a passage out of the world but because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. It was our sins, the burden of which he had assumed, that pressed him down with their enormous mass and tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. And the reason I bring this point up right away in this message is to give us understanding about a few things. I'm just going to address a couple of them. First, Jesus' agony as he gets into the garden and begins to pray was exponentially worse than any agony that you and I could ever experience. Now, we've experienced agony, and we may very well yet experience agony. Nothing compares to the agony that Jesus is experiencing here. He was facing not simply death or the process uh, of, of towards his death, not simply the wrath of God against the sins of one man, which all men outside of Christ will experience, I mean, those things are horrific enough. But Jesus was facing the wrath and indignation and infinite holy judgment of God against all the sins of all the people whom the Father would ever give him. To redeem, to stand condemned for, not everyone on the planet, but as Jesus stated in John chapter 6 and John chapter 10 and John chapter 17, all whom the Father had given him. Second thing to see from the get-go here, Jesus was a real man, living in real time, real space, with real emotions, just like you and I. And so let's not somehow put Jesus in a different category. Let's not dehumanize him or or super-spiritualize him for that matter. Scripture says he was like us in every way except without what? Sin. And so while he was in his nature God, he was also in his nature man, just like you and I experiencing a depth of dark emotions. These emotions were not inherently sinful. They certainly could be sinful. Now we often take those emotions to a sinful place, but Jesus was not. These were nevertheless real emotions, real deep, dark emotions. And dark emotions to the extent, in fact, that you and I simply will never ever experience. We, we just won't. There's no way we, we can. We're not taking on the sins of all the world, of all the Father had given him. We get tastes of what Jesus experienced. Guilt, loneliness, rejection. They're, they're real tastes. There's real fear real anxiety, real apprehension, real grief, real sorrow, real agony. (coughs) Nevertheless, all of our real and powerful emotions, and they are real and powerful, they pale in comparison to what Jesus is experiencing on this night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's just land on you and and just, you can just confess to the Lord, "I, I don't get that. I don't get it. Help me to feel a little bit of it." Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, the one for whom and through whom all things were created, he experiences to the nth degree the very emotions that you and I experience to a lesser, although no less real, manner. And so the point that I'm trying to make here in this, just by bringing this out, is that Jesus knows you. Your deepest, darkest emotions. Jesus sympathizes with you. Perhaps no one else on this planet can understand what you're going through. Jesus, the King of Kings, the Friend of Sinners, knows precisely and to an nth degree your deepest sorrow. Now we need to sit in that reality more often. I was sitting in this song this week, up um, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, and, and it's true. And songs like Jesus, Lover of My Soul, and and the reality is that Jesus, very real Jesus, knows my sorrow. He knows my struggle. He knows your sorrow. He knows your struggle. He is the shepherd of shepherds. He is the great. Do you, f- do you feel the wonder in that? What a great Savior we have, a personal Savior. What a friend. So it's with this kind of weight and sorrow and anguish that Jesus enters the garden with his disciples. And and there is um, time for one thing, one thing alone, and and it is to pray. That's why he's headed to this garden, is to pray. Amid all those very real and powerful emotions in preparation for what was to come, Jesus went to pray. And as soon as they arrived in the garden, Jesus turned to his disciples and told them to do one thing. What was it? Pray. Pray. Pray, brothers. Pray. They had, it was not that long ago that Jesus had taught them how to pray. So he says, Pray. Spend time praying, talking to God. Praise God. Honor God. Pray for his kingdom to come. Pray for daily bread. Pray for forgiveness as you forgive others, even your enemies. And, and then what is it that that's, at, at, that's at the end of the, of the Lord's Prayer in Luke but this? Lead us not into temptation. Luke chapter 11 verse 4. And here Jesus tells them to pray so that they may not enter into temptation. Not just once, but he tells them this twice. Now, what, do, what does he say at the end of verse 46? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, there's a way to read that as a prayer request. Lord, help me not to fall into temptation. You know, it's very good prayer and, and right and everything. But I kind of was thinking about it in a little bit of a different tone. It's going to make up most of this whole sermon. And it's, it's this, that I think Jesus is telling them to pray so that they don't enter into temptation. And let me try to explain the difference here. It tells them kind of that the way to not enter into temptation is through the means of prayer. It's interesting to me that the very prayer that Jesus had taught them to pray asks God to keep them from temptation, and in this text, Jesus teaches that prayer itself provides a means to do just that. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.16 that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in Ephesians 6.18, he tells us to do what? Pray in the Spirit. When? At all times. I think there's a connection here. Temptations will come, We know that, temptations of all kinds, anger, lust, greed, selfishness, self-pity, and I could go on, right? We know temptations. Sometimes simply we give in to those temptations. Other times we fight specific temptations by, like, uh, 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 by kind of escaping to other temptations or other good things that end up being temptations. But Jesus focuses in on one thing, a way to fight temptation, and that is pray, The reality is that Jesus knew what was going to take place that very night, and he was… what what they were going to experience was not simply unsettling, not simply a light temptation, but a severe testing that will be absolutely faith-shaking. Again, all of them walked into the garden with some level of sorrow some level of grief. And the only way to combat that, um, according to Jesus, was not just to white knuckle things and try to walk through it in her own strength, try to dominate their emotions and just suck it up like the men they should be. No. Get, Get that out of your head. It was to pray. The manliest thing to do on that night of nights was not to swing a sword, but to bow the knee and to pray. They were going to experience something so confusing, so faith damaging, so doubt inducing, so hope stripping that very night. And how does one prepare for that kind of thing? How would one prepare for something that no one could have fully understood? To be able to still respond in in faith, especially a significant difficulty. I mean, how does one prepare for bad news from the doctor? How does one prepare for any difficulty the phone call that no father or mother would want to receive? Well, here in the face of the severe test to come, Jesus tells the disciple disciples to, to pray, just as he's going to do, just a stone's throw away. The test is going to tempt them in unique ways, and every test does. The severe test, the difficult experience, difficulty experience would test their faith. Would, would the difficulty strip them of, our, of their hope? Would, would the test tempt them to fall away? Would the test tempt them to lose their faith? This is what it means to enter into temptation, to fall into temptation. To give oneself over to that which tempts. To the temptation to doubt God's goodness, the, the temptation to doubt God's promises, or, or, or really to move into a place of unbelief, and just to cling to yourself uh, to somehow withstand the difficulty. And the difficulty certainly could cause someone to do that. We, we've known people, and perhaps there's some here today who are really wrestling with trusting the Lord, really wrestling with faith. Uh, Apart from fervent and believing prayer, it certainly will move someone into a place of unbelief. Prayer would prepare the disciples' hearts and, and Jesus' heart and mind in particular, and keep them from giving way to the temptation amid severe testing to handle things on their own and to fall into despair and doubt. Prayer would prepare their hearts and their minds and keep them from failing the test when the time came. And the test did come, and the test will certainly come. Temptations and trials and tribulations, all part of this world. Sorrows, struggles, difficult events, grief, and so much more will be our experience in this life from time to time. And for some around the world, as Dan prayed for, it's a daily experience. For some in this room, it's your current experience, and the temptation that we face begins with the question, the temptation to question the heart and purposes of God, to to question the heart and purposes of of the one to whom you belong and have your being. And, And that leads to resisting him, which leads to rejecting him, which leads to opposing him, which results in falling away from him. This is what I've called over the last number of weeks the trajectory of rejection. It is the drift in the heart of a prayerless person. It is the drift in the heart of one who is giving in to temptation. And one thing I think we can learn in this text is that prayer, real, dependent, and fervent believing prayer nips all that in the bud and it prepares God's people for difficulty. Second observation. Fervent prayer positions God's people to entrust ourselves to the will of God Fervent prayer positions God's people to entrust ourselves to the will of God. Now, one of the realities that takes place as we pray in fervent trust to the Lord and in preparation for the day of severe testing or in the day of severe testing is that by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the authority and um, efficacy of God's Word, we come to find rest in the will of God. Consider the brief prayer of Jesus in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, as we considered earlier, Jesus was in utter distress. Don't forget that. He's in utter distress over what was going to take place in just a few hours. The eternal Son of God longed. The perfect, eternal Son of God longed to be delivered from the will of God in this sovereign and severe difficulty that was approaching. He pled to be delivered. He knew the will of God, didn't he? I mean, still he longed for it not to have to be this way. The eternal Son of God, God himself, the second person of the Trinity in this difficult and dark moment, desired for the will of God the Father to be accomplished some other way. If there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, please, if there's any other way. Jesus is not itching to experience what he's going to experience. I can't, I can't wait to be beaten. I can't wait for this to happen. Not in this moment. There was something, however, that he desired more than his own desire to have this cup of suffering removed. And it was to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in prayer, he postured himself under the will of his perfectly good, trustworthy, all-wise Father. Throughout the entire book of Luke, we've seen that Jesus knows what's coming. He he knows that he's on the road to Jerusalem for a specific reason. He's explained it on numerous occasions, what's gonna happen. He's been obedient all along the way and purposeful to set his face to go to Jerusalem, to be slain for sinners as the spotless lamb of God. Remember how he said in chapter 12 this? He says, I came to cast fire on earth, and would it be that it were already kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. That was, that was weeks ago. Now in the garden, that distress is, is at the peak, is at the pinnacle. It's approaching. It's right there. He's stressed out about it. And he takes it to the Father, and he says, Please, if there's any other way, nevertheless, I trust you. You'd be right to think that there's never been any other person in the history of the world that's felt such an intense desire to be spared the will of God in a difficult providence. And yet what do we see? We see the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, Born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in utter agony, humbled himself before God, expressing his preference to not have to walk the path that was laid before him, but humbly submitting and surrendering in utter dependence and trust to the will of God nevertheless. It's an act of humble obedience. It's the posture of trust. It's a posture of certainty in the faithful, faithful Father's heart and will and ways. And it's also a posture of hope, not just, okay, I guess, I guess if that's what you're going to do, then whatever. There was, a, there was a posture of hope. And we know that because we read in Hebrews 12, by way of calling us to look to Jesus, to look to him as an example. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The the joy set before him. It it was knowing that through the fire, through the baptism of the cross, there was the guarantee of eternal joy, not just just for him but for, for all that the Father had given him, like you and like me. Redemption accomplished for all whom the Father had given Him, and joy forevermore. Consider this what Phil Riken says, Jesus empowers us to follow His example in surrendering our own will to the will of God. It, it, It is not wrong to tell God what we truly desire, but even the good things we want must always be surrendered to the superior wisdom of His fatherly will. Thy will be done is one of the main petitions in the daily prayer that Jesus taught us, to pray. Thus our Lord calls us to pray this way through all the hard situations in life. It's what we pray about our losses and sorrows. It's what we pray for our ministry in all its sufferings. It's what we pray about our situation in life right now with all of its difficulties and discouragements. It's what we pray about the things in the future we wish that we could control and about everything beyond our power that we would give anything to change. And you feel that, don't you? Oh please, Lord, if there's any other way, you say, Father. I I will, I wish that you would take that away. Nevertheless, I surrender to you. My life and my death is in your hands. Now have you ever been there? I mean, are you there right now? Lord, is there any other way? Is it at all possible you'd remove this difficulty from us? I, I read a story this past week in that same commentary by Phil Riken um, about Dr. James Boyce. Um, and it was back in 2000 when he was diagnosed with a um, liver cancer, I believe. And, and two weeks later, just facing the likelihood of his imminent death, he stood in front of the church and he said these words. He says... You've been praying, certainly, and I've been assured of that by many people. A relevant question, I guess, when you pray is, pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my Father twelve legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, that is at his church at 10th Presbyterian, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. We've talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God's in charge. And when things like this come into our lives, they're not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forget, forgot what was going on and something slipped by. God does everything according to His will. We have always said that. But what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but He doesn't care. But it's not that. God is not only the one who's in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do. Friends, what was it that was on the mind of Jesus in the garden? Or Dr. Boyce on that last Sunday he preached. Was it not the glory of god when when we pray we don't bring our will and demand god to do something according to our will when we pray we bring our every humble request and desire and longings of our hearts and we lay them before our loving infinitely wise and good father and entrust ourselves entirely to his will oh we ask for healing oh please heal my brother heal my sister have mercy. Protect the women and children in Afghanistan. Do, do this. Do that. Please do that. Surrender to your will. You are the all-wise one. You are the good one. We, we pray that the deepest desire and the deepest longing of our hearts would be like the heart of Jesus, no matter how difficult the path, to see the glory of God shining brightly and the salvation of his people accomplished. I know that many of you in this room have gone through or are going through suffering, and one of your prayer requests is that your suffering, current suffering, one, that God would deliver you, two, that God would make much of himself through your suffering for his glory and for the salvation of your kids or the salvation of your neighbors. That, that's, that's Christ-like. Final observation this morning. Fervent prayer provides the strength we require. And we require strength, don't we? Prayer prepares God's people for difficulty. Prayer positions God's people to entrust ourselves to the will of God. And Prayer, that is fervent prayer particularly, provides the strength we require amid the difficulty. Consider that Jesus prays and is strengthened as a result. Strengthened so much in the face of such anguish that the text says he rose up and went to his disciples. One commentator said this, David Garland, he says, Luke reports that Jesus rose from prayer, which means more than he stopped praying and stood up. It implies that he was buoyed from prayer in, con- from prayer, in contrast to the disciples who were sleeping from grief. He becomes a model of how to pray to resist temptation, and now is able to give himself over to his enemies fervent and believing prayer strengthened Jesus for the severe testing to come. He, he rose. And he was ready for this next exceedingly difficult task he was to complete, ready for Judas to come with the crowd in verse 47 and betray him with a kiss, ready to call out the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders of their continued hypocrisy later on in our text, and ready to entrust himself entirely to God in the face as our text ends, even, even in the face of the power of darkness. That swept in during this sovereignly ordained hour that God had given. God still sovereign, but allowing this, planning this act of redemption. Thank God that He kept to His plan and His purpose and His will. The disciples. Though we're not like that. They faced the oncoming grief and struggle not by fervent prayer, but they fell prey to, as our text says, sleeping from sorrow or grief. And in the end, they were entirely unprepared. They were entirely left without strength to sustain them in the face of the testing. And what we see later in our text, and in the next week's text, is the result. When the trial comes, and they begun to understand. It's an interesting statement in our text. They, they, it says, um, uh, "When they, uh, verse 49, uh, when those who were around him saw what would follow, it's like starting to click. Oh my word! What's going on? What happened? Self-sufficient swords came out. When the trial comes, a disciple denies the one to whom he's just promised he'd never leave." Other gospels tell us that when the trial comes, all his disciples run away and leave him. In other words, they fell into temptation on account of their prayerlessness. Listen, the result of prayerlessness left unchecked, unrepented of, will result in our entering into the strong temptation towards self-sufficiency, trusting in ourselves and our own solutions apart from God, which will 100% of the time fail us in the end, or will result in us denying the Son of God, or at the very least keeping our heads down, looking to save our own skin, amid the opposition that the Lord Jesus has stated emphatically would come to his own. Now, Jesus tells his disciples then, and he tells his disciples now, like you and I, to pray that they may not enter into temptation. It's not surprising. It's not shocking. Not any new uh, revelation to kind of wow us here. Very much a church answer. The surprising and shocking thing would be that in the face of severe testing, The disciples just sat in their sorrow and ultimately fell asleep, falling prey to their grief and being entirely unprepared for the trial when it came. And we today are just not much different. See, as Jesus' sorrow grew, He prays all the more fervently. And as the disciples' sorrow grew, they just fell asleep, stopped praying. Jesus was strengthened. The disciples were impotent. Friends, there is strength to be received in prayer, spiritual strength, emotional strength, psychological strength, physical strength, strength to endure, strength to face hardship, strength to face testing. Uh, Apart from prayer, strength is minimal, and it's temporal, and it's fleeting. Apart from prayer, we're left to the ultimately useless swords of our own strength we we bring to the battle. It's easy to sleep, isn't it? (laughs) It's easy to sleep. It's easy to be unaware, not alert. It's easy to get angry, to lash out with the swords of our tongues or the swords of our keyboards. We can certainly identify with the disciples in this moment, as we have been able to identify with them all along the path. In difficulty, it's simply easier to find something to distract us. Food, movies, vacation, work, you, you name it. The temptation to not pray is strong. The temptation to face the sorrow, the struggle, the doubts, the anguish on our own, on our own or, or through some other thing is, is very powerful. The disciples in their prayerlessness lashed out with lethal intention to hurt or even kill the enemies of God while Jesus was prepared and purposed and poised through fervent and believing prayer to serve his enemies by allowing them to kill him so that if they believe on him, they'd be saved. The disciples wanted to hurt the enemies of Jesus, but Jesus intended to die for them, not kill them. In fact, he shows us just an act of mercy, doesn't he? The disciples lop the ear off of the guy, and Jesus says, cool it, puts the ear back on. It's just like a little notation in in the text. But this is the heart of our Jesus, who had said, love your enemies. Now what are the self-sufficient swords that you bring to the difficulties the Lord has brought to your life. Anger, unbelief, distrust, fear, uncertainty, anxiety. I got to Throughout the years I've been in pastoral ministry, two things always 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 pop up as noticeably absent in someone who is enmeshed in, fi- in sinful struggle and doubt and anger and unbelief and incessant fear of not being in control of something. One, a lack of being in God's Word, and two, a lack of prayer. No exceptions. And I, and I get it. I, I'm included in that. Certainly our flesh wars against us in this, and so does the pull of the world, and certainly we have an enemy as well. One man, John Flavel, writes this, the devil is aware that one hour of close fellowship, of hearty converse with God in prayer is able to pull down what he's been contriving and building many a year. But we, like the disciples, Matthew and Mark speak of it more than Luke does, they're continually falling asleep. (laughs) They just cannot stay awake. Do you feel like you can't stay awake? Do you feel like you can't stay alert? There is strength to be had. Through prayer. Do you, do you see what a weapon against the enemy's devices prayer is? When we pray, we aren't just working on a spiritual discipline as though just something that we need to be doing as a Christian. We pray to tap into the very power of God and the sufficiency of God. Um, prayer, pray, pray, pray continually in the Spirit to know his will, to entrust ourselves to his will, to surrender to his will. We pray to offer our, our, our lives as living sacrifices to him. We pray to gain the mind of Christ, to know the mind of Christ. We pray to receive grace and power and joy and rest and contentment. Far from any religious obligation, prayer is a gift to enjoy, and prayer is a gift to be strengthened by. It's a gift to be able to talk to our King. Now, this past Wednesday, uh, every… One, once a month, well, every week, the elders meet for prayer, unless we're out of town or something. But the last week, we met with the deacons. And it's from 12 to about 1. And I was busy, 11.30, 11.45, 11.50, 11.55. I don't got time for this. I got a sermon to write. I got this other stuff to write. I, it wasn't, it wasn't that frank, but it was just like, ah, oh man, it's five, we've got to pray in five minutes. And have you ever been there to where you're like, I know it's a good thing, but like I need to get on with the task at hand kind of thing. Well, um, I'm the pastor, right? So I can't like not show up. So I, I, I call in and uh, And we enter into praying in about five minutes. And so I start and my heart's not in it. Um, But my first prayer request was something along the lines of, Lord, I am in absolute dependence on you. And what I meant in that moment was right now, you got to change my heart. Just in that little, it was probably a five-minute prayer. In that, in that moment, the King, Jesus, strengthened my heart to pray for the next 45 minutes with these brothers, to, to interact with these guys and to say, yes, Lord, yes, do that. And, and we are absolutely dependent on you. My heart in those moments changed. What would I have given up if I had said, brothers, I, I, I got these other things to do? You guys pray. Thanks for praying. You guys are awesome. Whatever. But I got… I got the, I, I, I'm just too busy. I'm, we're, we are too busy to not pray. We, we must pray. We must be praying. It's such, not just because, you know, we need to, we, we have to, if we're a good Christian, we should pray. It's because prayer is sustenance. Prayer is sustaining grace, mercies, strength for the day. And so can I exhort each of us to lay the swords of our self-sufficiency down and take up the weapons of our warfare in prayer? to resist the enemy of our faith who keeps telling us to fight in our own strength or give up the faith and run away, to resist the enemy of our faith by bending our knees and fervently pleading and praying to the Lord, not only in the day of testing, but in the day of preparation for that day of testing, which most certainly will come. Now consider just these few verses as we close. Romans 12, 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. there's There's no nuance there. Be constant in prayer, be mindful. Why? Because it strengthens us. And we're interceding, and it's for the glory of God. It's not just because it's something we should do as Christians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then this wonderful passage that we read a few weeks back, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, and I got to read the whole thing. Finally, hear the strength be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, that you may be able to resist temptation, that you may be able to not fall into temptation. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and a shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. David Garland says these very important words, prayer establishes roots in divine soil that not only absorbs its nutrients but also holds one securely when the winds of testing batter one's faith. Oh, that's so good. What is it that's battering your faith today? Is it your health? The health of a loved one, the vaccine, mandates, politics, the situation in Afghanistan, the wildfires, the floods, the hurricane, parenting situations, school, a battle with besetting sin, a difficult marriage, discouragement, fear, despair, depression, a quickness to anger, an unanswered prayer, an unmet desire, wrong beliefs about God, maybe past abuse, whether it's emotional, sexual, physical, or spiritual, or, or some other thing. Pray that you would be strengthened to not fall into temptation and leave the God you love. Pray that you'd be strengthened to entrust yourself to the will of God. Pray that you would see afresh this morning what Phil Riken says best in his commentary when he says, if I understand Gethsemane at all, it means that Jesus loves me even more than I can imagine. It's not just that he died for me, but that he died this horrible, damnable, God-forsaken death that no one would ever want to die. He died this death because there was no other way for sinners to be saved, no easier road to redemption, no alternative to the cross. Jesus thus volunteered to do what the Father willed, choosing to do the one thing that would bring the most suffering to his body and his soul. And amid our difficulties, we go to Jesus in prayer, friends, and find strength. The hardest thing to do is to pray. It's hard. The disciples found it hard and they grew tired, so they fell asleep. They they didn't sense their utter desperation for strength from God. They didn't know at that time that they were in need of God to prepare them and empower them for what lay ahead. But it wasn't that many weeks later when we see that these same fellows, they learned the lesson from Jesus well. After confronting some significant difficulty with the Jewish officials in Acts chapter 4, they don't strike out with swords anymore. They don't just sit around and complain about the difficult religious leaders they're dealing with or the brutality of the Roman government they were under, but rather they pray. This is what happens. When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They prayed. And what is it that happens? And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now do you desire strength and contentment? and even joy and satisfaction in life, whether preparing for difficult days or dealing with current difficult days? I do, and I know you do also. Prince fervent and believing prayer provides the people of God with precisely what is needed in the face of the severest of difficulties.